Welcome to the Light Bears Institute podcast, where we seek to improve biblical literacy by discussing key storylines and themes in Scripture. This is Brett Art with, with Light Bears. I'm the Fayetteville Campus Director, and we are here today with podcast number three with Light Bears. The last two podcasts, we finished the, the book of Genesis, and today we're going to dive into Exodus and Leviticus. And to help us do that, we have the one and only Andrew Brill, who is the Discipleship Director. He is wearing a, a very bright orange shirt today. How are you, Andrew? It's good. Good. Um, it's good to be back here in the studio that is the upper corner <laughs> room of the Light Bears office. It's, the, it's got great sound quality, people. Uh, so, Andrew, you recently taught on Exodus and Leviticus. And so uh, the last two podcasts, which you guys can, can check out uh, soon, if you have not listened to those, we would encourage you to do so. And so we, we, we finished with, with Genesis ending, and then so Exodus will begin. So, so Andrew, set the story for us. Where are we at this point? Yeah, so we, we talked last, last time about the family line in Genesis. The Genesis starts with the, the universal, the general, and then uh, eventually narrows to a specific people. So uh, Abram was Abram, Abraham was the first of those, and you kind of trace his family line. Um, and so when Genesis ends... You've got the the people of Israelites, uh, the people of Israel. So so Abraham's grandson Jacob, uh, he and his twelve sons and their kids have moved to the nation of Egypt. Uh, it's a total of about seventy five people. So I think seventy five people in a country of four point five million. And and I think it's helpful to kind of frame it up in that way because you you recognize. This is a people that should disappear. Right. When, when there's 75 within the midst of 4.5 million, they, they should disappear from the pages of history. And and really, in Genesis, over and over again, they almost disappear. Like there's all these moments that a lot of times we read over, but where they almost intermarry with another nation, or you know, and the the people group is that small. It, it's just one family intermarrying with another nation is what it would be, and so they would just disappear from the pages of history. And, and they don't. They don't disappear. And so we see that that uh, at, at its core that, that this is a God thing, this story. I mean, really, I mean, you look at Genesis and I mean, it's just hardship after hardship after hardship. I mean, all of the women seemingly have trouble having kids. They're, you know, they're over and over again. The women are barren over and over again. The firstborn sons are rejected. They're promised land. They don't have land. They're nomads. They keep screwing up like, you know, I mean, it's it's kind of crazy. Like you read this. If all you had was Genesis, you'd kind of say, why do these people stay around? Um, but but I think that's kind of the point is to recognize this is a God thing and, and, and really to say all along, there's a different plane of understanding, not plane airplane, but a different plane, P-L-A-I-N of understanding where we look at the lives of Abraham, of Jacob and Joseph, and we see, yes, they're they're living their day-to-day lives, and yet to understand properly what's going on, you've got to look at it from the divine point of view. Um, Brett, you and I remember a, a, a former staffer, uh, Clark Lassie, who would talk about the keyhole perspective that yeah. we see through the keyhole. And so I think that that's, that's part of this is to say, well, you know, when Joseph says what you meant for evil, God meant for good, that's the way we should look at all of life. But Genesis in particular to say, yeah, the, the Israelites are moving moment by moment through the story, and yet God is doing something much bigger. Right. And it kind of ends, I mean, you mentioned that, of it, there seems to kind of be a high point uh, of at the end of, of Genesis, uh, and then we, we get into Exodus, and, and it, it looks a little different. So um, I know the, the the narrative of Exodus we're relatively familiar with. Yeah. 
uh, probably a lot of reasons being movies that, that are relatively popular. Um, but, but point as to why, why, uh, Genesis, I'm sorry, Exodus chapter three is, is so important. Yeah. So, so Exodus starts, you've got the people of Israel in, um, in Egypt and, and really Exodus kind of throws you a couple hundred years into the future and says, Hey, now the people have multiplied. There's a whole lot of Israelites. So it's not just 75 anymore. It's a whole lot. We're a couple hundred years down the road. Uh, and they are a threat to the political power structure that is Egypt. And so Egypt it has said, hey, we need to um, we need to keep this um, this people group from becoming more powerful. Uh, we need to keep this minority from becoming a majority in a sense. And so they uh, so Egypt um, essentially starts a genocide of sorts where they, are aiming to, I mean, they, they enslave the Israelites and they aim to kill the, the, the sons. And so, but one son, uh, one baby, uh, Moses is miraculously saved from that and, and, and actually lives for 40 years in the Egyptian palace and then, um, spends 40 years in the wilderness. And then there's this moment. So the first two chapters of Exodus, all that's the first two chapters of Exodus is 80 years. And then Exodus three through 40 is a couple of years. But something happens at Exodus three, and 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 that is Moses. I mean, so you got this guy in the desert. He's he spent part of his time in a palace, part of his time in the wilderness, and, and what we see is, and really, I guess this is the end of chapter two. But but two twenty four says that God heard their groaning, the Israelites groaning, and He remembered His covenant. So w- what happens is at the end of the day, after these hundreds of years. It's God that hears their groaning and groaning and remembers their covenant. It's not Moses sitting out there in the desert saying, "You know what I need to do? I need to head back to I need to head back to Cairo." <laughs> you know, I mean, he's not. And I should side note: I have no idea whether Cairo was actually yeah. there as a city. But <laughs> side note: um, I need to head back to the Nile. How about that? I'm pretty sure the Nile was was Around. there back then. Um, so um, it's that God heard their groaning and remembered His covenant. And then, so what does he do? God reveals himself through a burning bush to Moses. And he says, he says, I'm the God of your father, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I've come to deliver my people. And so what he, what he does, you know, and, and you got to put this through the lens of Moses. I mean, Mo- Moses, he doesn't have the Old Testament. He has, he has some stories probably that he's heard Presumably, he has faithful parents who have told him stories of the God of his fathers, but he's got no scripture. He's got no experiences of his own to live with. I mean, and all these stories are 300 years old, 400 years old that he's that he's heard. 400 years is a long time. Right. I mean, that's from now, that's going back to Jamestown. And right. so it, it's it, there are these old stories that he's heard. And then God shows up and he says, hey, Moses, the God that you've heard of from your parents, from your grandparents I'm him and, and my people, they're still my people. And so I think that that's one of the things that we have to recognize here is this isn't, this isn't Moses saying, you know what? I'm, I'm tired of being a wealthy shepherd. I think I'm going to go back and be an enslaved person again. No, this is God saying, I remember my covenant. Right. I, I know my people, Moses, I, I want you to go back I want you to go back and get mm, them yeah. um, and to, and to lead them out. And this is also obviously the moment uh, where God says, you know, what's my name? My name is, I am who I am. Um, the, the, 
the the name that he, he I mean, it's kind of a self-identification that he gives that he hasn't given before uh, before this moment. And so overall, in, Gen- in Exodus 3, God is moving towards his people. And mm-hmm. from there, the story really accelerates. You sure. have the plagues, you have the the Red Sea, the Passover, all of that. But but Exodus 3 is this, okay, all the past has led to this. It's this turning point moment. So uh, I know previous podcasts, we've, we've talked about Abraham. I mean, he, he's a pretty key figure as far as us understanding the Old Testament. M- Moses is too. And so, I mean, really, he, he pops on the scene here in, in Exodus. But but why, from a, from a standpoint of scripture, why is Moses such a big key figure? Yeah, I mean, if you look at the New Testament, I mean, it's going to point back to Moses a lot. And so I think, you know, we talk about the New Testament being the divinely inspired commentary on the Old Testament. Well, Jesus is going to talk about what Moses wrote, what Moses said. There's the transfiguration moment. And who shows up at the transfiguration, Matthew 17, uh, Moses and Elijah. Right. And that's not saying there's some ranking system in which <laughs> Moses and Elijah are one, two, um, you know, sincerely David. Um, <laughs> but I think there is this like, clearly the New Testament has said Moses is a significant figure. He's the one who brings the law. Um, in terms of God gives Moses the law. Um, and so I think that that's, that's a big piece of it is so much of our understanding of what the, what the system of life and government and sacrificial system, all of that, uh, Moses is so intricately tied into that. Um, you know, did he write the first five books of the Bible? Uh, a lot of evangelicals will say yes, whether he does, whether he physically wrote them or not. His his fingerprints are all over the first five books of the Bible. Right, right. Uh, so so we're hoping to emphasize this this theme that we've talked about in the first two podcasts of God glorifying Himself by dwelling among a holy covenant people. Uh, that that theme we, we saw in the last podcast, how that showed up in, in Genesis. How, how does that show up in Exodus? I know you in your talk you talked about the tabernacle. Uh, is that why? So so kind of walk us through yeah. that. Yeah, you know you you said earlier that there's movies that talk about Exodus. You know, I think of the Ten Commandments, the Prince of Egypt. So where do those stories end? If we know the story of Exodus or watch the movies about Exodus, where do they end? They might end at the Red Sea crossing, which is Exodus 15. Um, They might make it all the way to the wilderness and the delivering of the Ten Commandments, which is Exodus 20. That's only halfway through. Like, we just... It's just jumps out of me. It's that we kind of forget about the whole second half of Exodus when we're telling these familiar stories. Well, and what's significant about that? Well, I think one of the things that's significant is Exodus is not simply a story of a God rescuing his people out of slavery. If that's what it was, then you stop it at Exodus sure. 15 because they're out of slavery at that point. But that's not what the story is. The story is about a God having a people who know him, who follow him, that he dwells among. God glorifying himself by dwelling among a holy covenant people. And the second half of Exodus, the first half is about rescuing people from slavery. The second half is about God dwelling among them. Side note, isn't that like our life? That right. that God delivers us from sin. He rescues us from sin. But then that's not the end of the story. He dwells with us and changes us, gives us a new law within our hearts to live by. Um, but I think that that's, that's, that's part of it. And so that's why the tabernacle is so significant, I think, in, in how we look at this. And so um, there's a, this is 25, Exodus 25, 8, 9, where it first talks about the tabernacle. And it says, it says, let them construct a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them. 
according to all that I'm going to show you as the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furniture, just so shall you construct it. And, you know, if you're doing a Bible reading plan, you read this stuff and you're like, oh, this is about to get difficult to read my three chapters a day <laughs> because it's this list of materials right. to build and all that kind of stuff. But but it really, really is significant. It says, let them build a sanctuary. Why? That I may dwell among them. Mm. And, you know, if you trace this God dwelling among his people, well, he dwelled among them in the garden, Genesis 1. And then after sin, he, he cast them out of the garden um, so that they wouldn't live in that sinful state forever. Um, and then the scripture moves forward with this progressive dwelling of God am- among men. And so in Genesis, you have these moments where, where he appears to Abram or Jacob and they build an altar. So, you know, I, I call it the great kind of, is he dwelling among them? Well, kind of. And then, and then we get to Exodus and it's, okay, now I'm going to put my tabernacle among you. So I'm going to dwell in an even greater way than an altar. And it's just going to grow from there. I mean, we're going to get to the temple and, you know, those sorts of things eventually. But, I, you know, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to do a spoiler at this point, but that's, that's <laughs> Exodus 25 is I'm going to build a tabernacle um, or I'm going to have you build a tabernacle. And it's so significant. I mean, over and over again, there's this language of you have to do it exactly according to the pattern. And there's all these specifications about how, how many sockets you use to connect the boards and, and, the, and the, the, the type of materials that you use and all these different things. And it says over and over again, Moses did exactly as God commanded him. And I mean, when you read it straight through, it just jumps out at you how often that happens. Well, then you get to Hebrews and in Hebrews um, 9, it talks about the fact that all of these things were a copy of the greater sanctuary and, and that Jesus was a greater high priest and he entered into the greater heavenly tabernacle. And so that's where it's, I think you see, oh, this is why it was significant to do things exactly according to the plans, because the plans themselves are a copy of something greater. Shadow. Uh, yeah, 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 shadow. That's a good word for it. And, uh, and so that's where I, that's why I really like going to the tabernacle is because it, it shows that God's dwelling amongst people. And it also shows the greater right. thing that Jesus is doing there. And it's cool to see. I mean, you, we talked about that, the, the, the last two podcasts of, of this kind of this Christocentric view or, or reading the old Testament with the new Testament always in view or Christ in view. Mm-hmm. And obviously we, we see that in, in Exodus. So then we get to Leviticus and, and it's probably an understatement to say that, that this book is intimidating to, to a lot of people. Uh, and probably because we, we simply don't know what to do with a lot of it. And so in Leviticus 14, uh, you put oil on the big toe of a leper, uh, or if, if there's mold in your house, you, you sacrifice a pigeon. And, and yeah. so t- today we don't know what to do with that. And so as you, as you taught on this, what was your hope in teaching Leviticus with, with college students? Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of times we can just, you know, in a sense, Christians are uncomfortable with Leviticus. We kind of want to throw it out and be like, I just, I don't want to read it. I don't want to think about it. I'll either ignore it altogether or I'll make jokes about it or I'll hope nobody mentions it when I'm talking with them, you know. But when we when we run into this sense of, of almost embarrassment about Leviticus, let's do a couple of things. First of all, let's imagine a world with no Leviticus. Um, and, and, and certainly all of Scripture uh, is going to speak to other parts of Scripture. And so th- there's not one doctrine that shows up in Leviticus that's nowhere else. But, but imagine a world with no Leviticus. Um, in that world, it, it tends toward everyone worshiping the way that they want. And, and you think about where that would actually lead. Mm. Um, Leviticus is going to say that it warns about child sacrifice. It warns about dangerous worship practices. 
Leviticus actually protects us from worshiping the wrong way and the dangers of where that leads. Uh, Leviticus also is going to is going to give us great insight into this concept of forgiveness. There's this neat moment that I noticed this time in Leviticus where it says if you have a bull then you sacrifice a bull, but if you don't have that, you can use a ram, and and it kind of goes down. If you don't have much at all, you can use birds, and so there's these different tiers in a sense to what you offer in your sacrifices. But one of the really amazing parts of it is is there's no distinction in the forgiveness that is offered. So it's not as if the rich are extra forgiven versus the poor. Uh, there's no tiered forgiveness, but it's tiered offering, and and so there's something incredible in seeing this picture of of forgiveness, and mm-hmm. so you have moments like that in Leviticus. Um, most importantly, I think it's really significant that Leviticus l- reminds us that man doesn't approach God on his own, um, that, that, that on our own, we can't simply walk into the holy place. We cannot approach God on our own. And, and in doing that, we, um, we begin to see this need for what Jesus did. And so Leviticus actually shows us something of what Jesus did and, and, and reminds us of the, the sacrificial system and how he served as a sacrifice. Uh, one commentator I read made the point that Jesus and his disciples understood Jesus's death through the lens of Leviticus. Uh, Luke 24 is going to talk about how Jesus explained the Old Testament scriptures and how they pointed to him. Well, Leviticus points to him, and the sacrificial system is one of the main ways in which, in which that happens. Um, second of all, um, in addition to to imagining a world with no Leviticus, second of all, we could just trust that, as Second Timothy said, all scriptures God breathed and profitable. That's not that's not that all scriptures profitable except for Leviticus. All scriptures profitable for teaching, for rebuke, for correction, for training in righteousness. And so Leviticus has to be included in that. And so we have to step in with this posture of trust. Um, at the core, though, and I, and and I, I know I'm giving a lengthy answer to the question here, but. But at the core, I think there's this underlying issue of, of what do we do with the, quote, weird laws in the Bible? And, and, and for some of us, this is a challenge personally. Um, the, the, hey, I'm uncomfortable with some of these things that I'm reading. For others of us, but, but really for all of us, this is a, a challenge culturally. Um, Leviticus is it's like number one on popular culture's assault on the Bible and Christianity. You, you'll hear this language of Christians don't take the Bible seriously because just look at Leviticus. If they took the Bible seriously, look, you know, they don't, they don't follow these things in Leviticus. And, um, and, and so I'm not, you know, I'm not necessarily diving into the depths of that here, obviously, but I am saying that we need to make sure that we understand Leviticus better than culture at, at large does. And so it's good to actually step into what do we deal, what do we do with these, these laws that we don't understand and to step in and to, to embrace a little bit of the discomfort and to step in there. Uh, and, and I think it's an, it's a it's a moment of faith to really step in and say, okay, God, I don't understand this, but I want to step in, and I want to challenge our students to that. Um, so, so what do we do with with all of these laws? Well, a couple of a couple of principles that I think it's good to keep in mind. First of all, is we got to seek to understand Leviticus in its context, in its Old Testament, um, ancient uh, Middle East context, and, and and so one of the things there, you know, for example. We read the word slave or slavery in Leviticus, and our minds here in America jump to the chattel slavery of the 19th century and and um, and before that. And um, the slavery that's talked about in Leviticus is is different. It's not it's not race based slavery. It is 
really it's a indentured servanthood. It's, you know, when there's no bankruptcy system, well, what do you do when people owe debts? Well, they, they would sell themselves to someone to work for them. Um, and then the way Leviticus has set it up is that every 50 years, those people go free and properties return to the original owners. And so, so that it's, a, it's certainly a different concept um, than this, than this race-based slavery. And I, I simply use that as an example to say, we've got to seek to understand Leviticus in the context in which, in which it's written. Um, and that that's challenging, obviously, but good commentaries uh, can help with that. Second of all, is we've got to seek to understand Leviticus and really the Old Testament as a whole in light of the New Testament. And so um, Galatians 3 is going to say that the law is the, is the tutor that leads us to Christ. Matthew 5 is going to say, Jesus says that he came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. And so we've got to look at Leviticus and look at the law as a whole and say, it was supposed to lead us to Jesus, and Jesus has fulfilled it. So what do we do with that? Well, that's where we seek the guidance of the New Testament. Um, and the New Testament's going to say that a lot has changed. Mark 7, Jesus says that, that all foods are clean. Uh, Hebrews, Jesus, it says that um, because of the work of Jesus, sacrifices aren't needed. We don't have to offer sacrifices every day. Um, and so, so there are some, a lot of things that have changed after Jesus at the same time, there's a, there's a moral law that still, that still matters. Romans 13 says you're still supposed to love your neighbor. And so, you, you know, there, the, and the church has been wrestling with this for, for a long, long time. And, and so I'm not going to solve it here, obviously, but I think that that's where you go at as you go through this lens of, I'm going to look at Leviticus through the lens of the new Testament and say, it was supposed to lead us to Jesus, and Jesus has fulfilled it. So how do we respond to that? Um, Tim Keller, when he's talking about the tabernacle, said that in the past, everybody did their good deeds on the way to get into see God, on the way into the tabernacle. Now, after Jesus, we have seen God, and so we still do good deeds, but we do them on the way out. The posture of them is totally different. We're not doing them on the way in as an is a right to see God, but on the way out as a response from seeing God. And, and so that's probably a rule of thumb that I would want to tell our students and others is to say, simply make sure, this is your rule of thumb, look at Leviticus, look at the Old Testament in light of what Jesus has done. So here's my challenge, um, and I'll, I'll wrap it up here in a minute, but, but my challenge is just don't run from Leviticus. Culturally, that, that's not an option um, because it, it is going to be thrown in our face sometimes, but just Practically, it's profitable. It's good. Let's dig into it. My advice is to read the Bible and to read the hard parts and to be honest about the fact. And this is what I want to do with students is to say, I don't know every answer yet, but I want to model how to deal with answers I don't know. Right. And so when it says put oil on the big toe of the leopard, to use your example, is that some... Is, is there something like symbolic in that that I'm supposed to recognize? Is there actually some hidden medicinal advantage there that we don't know about it, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I just don't know some of this stuff, but what I'm going to do is I'm not going to just ignore it. I'm going to read it. I'm going to read it in context. I'm going to see how do I read this in light of the new Testament that that's how I'm going to, that's how I'm going to press forward in this. Um, so, so I think that that's what I hope college students take away from this is to say, Let's read scripture. Let's read the whole, and let's let's not cherry pick the stuff that we want. So right. um, Leviticus, in particular, you know, it really helps me to read the whole thing and say, okay, what's it about? It's about holiness and cleanliness. That that's what it's about. It's about the sacrificial system. I mean, the Lord Leviticus 
comes from Levite. The, what kind of priest do we have? We have they're from the tribe of Levi. So it kind of helps you to frame it up to say, hey, all of these seemingly uh, random laws in here, well, it all fits in this framework of what is God's instructions to the priests and what is his instructions on the topic of holiness and on cleanliness and how one can approach God. And then I think if you can get a big framework, then you can start piecing some of this stuff together. And I know that's really helpful for me to begin to say, okay, how do these seemingly random things fit into the bigger whole? To the bigger picture. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I know you talked a lot on uh, on chapter 16. Uh, that's that's the Day of Atonement. Uh, walk us through how, how Israel celebrated the Day of Atonement and why it is significant for, for us as believers today. Yeah, that's Leviticus 16. And I have found it helpful, you know, you know, in the midst of, okay, Leviticus is confusing to say, Let's pick one chapter and let's let's let that kind of shine some light on the whole. Um, I think that that's that's really helpful. And so the Day of Atonement is is really significant within the scope of Leviticus. And so what you have there is you have the description of a scene that's supposed to happen uh, once a year, where the high priest goes into the the most holy place. So within the tabernacle, there was a a, a segmented room. There was a there was a veil that set off the very back room, uh, and the Ark of the Covenant was there. And it was called the most holy place. And once a year, the high priest could go in there only once a year. Uh, and so he could go in there uh, and he would he would offer sacrifices outside of it and burn incense in there. And um, I, I believe I'd have to double check on, on exactly um, what he would do in within the most holy place. But um, it's just this elaborate preparation. He would sacrifice a bull. He would sacrifice a ram. He'd sacrifice two goats. Um most of the sacrifices people actually did, but these, these are ones that the high priest would do. And so, um, you know, I mean, he had a rope tied around his ankle with a bell on it, presumably so that if he died while in the most holy place, he could be pulled out. I mean, the elaborate preparation of this moment is, is kind of astounding. Um, but what, what I think is really, I mean, all of it is significant. One thing I really want to point out is, is, you know, he sacrifices two goats in that process but he actually only sacrifices one of them. So there's two goats. One of them is sacrificed and then one is set out into the desert. And I think when we read that through a New Testament lens, the New Testament lens says, in a sense, Jesus is the two goats. So Isaiah 53, 6, that that all of us like sheep have gone astray, but the Lord has cast the iniquity of us all on him. Um, and so the idea there is, why is the goat sacrificed? For the sin of the people. And so you have this picture, just like you do in Passover, of an innocent lamb, an innocent goat here. An innocent lamb was slain so that the people weren't. So there's a substitution sacrifice there. But then what do you do with this other goat? Well, I mean, Psalm 103 and other places are going to say, what does God do with our sin? He casts it far away from him. Isaiah 38, he casts our sin away. Um, Isaiah, I mean, Psalm 103.12 is the... As far as the east is from the west, so far as he's removed our transgression from us. And so there's a visual picture there of the sin that is gone. It's led away. And so in that sense, Jesus is both of the both of the goats. And so I think in in all of this, why is the Day of Atonement significant? Well, it's because it's because it points us to Jesus really, really clearly. Um, Hebrews is gonna tell us some of this in particular. We talked about that earlier, that Jesus is the better high priest. But look at I mean. You know, I talked about the elaborate preparation of the Day Day of Atonement. Well, look at Jesus. Jesus doesn't just go in the holy place once a year. 
he dwells there. Jesus doesn't just enter in by himself with a rope tied around his ankle. He can bring others into the most holy place, to the presence of God with him. When he, when he died, it says that he died, he breathed his last, and the veil was ripped. The veil in the temple was ripped. He's able to bring others in. The high priest, before he does this, he has to make atonement for his own sin. Jesus doesn't have to make atonement for his own sin. And so all of these things about the day of atonement point us to Jesus being greater. And, and so I think that that's, again, I, I don't want our students to be afraid of Leviticus. I want them to read it well. I want them to read it with a, okay, where is Jesus in the midst of this? And um, and so that's where I think, you know, kind of if you look at this whole of Exodus and Leviticus, well, you know, we started this with Exodus with you had an oppressed people. They were barely surviving. You know, they're, they're hoping that God would remember them in a sense because they haven't heard from God in centuries, it would seem. And where do we end? We end with God dwelling among them and promising to make atonement for their sin. That's an astonishing transformation that happens in these two books from an oppressed people wondering if God is listening to a people who right. has God dwelling among them as their king who says, I'll, I'll atone for your sin. That's the rich, some of the rich stuff of the Old Testament that we get to dig into. Right. Well, that's cool. Again, we, we see that progression of, of seeing that talked about in Genesis and then, and then now Exodus and Leviticus as well. So I, I know you mentioned, uh, you brought up a, a couple passages from, from Hebrews. So if you're, uh, but before we go here, if you're giving uh, tips for, for reading Leviticus, would you say, hey, couple this with Hebrews or, or is there another tip to, to maybe a student or somebody listening who's a little intimidated by Leviticus? Is there a tip you'd give uh, when, when diving into that? Yeah, I'll steal your tip. Read, read Hebrews at the same time. I think that's a really, really good one. Um, you know, that that would be the best one, the best one that I have, honestly, which is not the one I have. So that's the one you have. So no, I would do that. I mean, that, you know, like any any study of scripture, I'd say, you know, read it in context, read it in community, you know, don't just read it on your own, sitting in your room by yourself, but read some of it and take it to trusted people that you know and there's good resources on on the internet um, that you can you can go to. But that's where I would that's where I'd go with that. Well thanks Andrew. Uh, that that ends podcast three. Uh, next time we're gonna do podcast number four with numbers and Deuteronomy. You've been listening to the Light Bears Institute podcast, a production of Light Bears Ministries. For more information, visit lightbears.com. Mm-hmm.